A three-year freeze in Australia-China discussions is about to come to an end. Australians could face a second referendum if the no vote on The Voice wins, and employers who underpay staff could be put in prison for up to 10 years. Welcome to Fear and Greed Business News, Australia's best business podcast. It is Monday, the 4th of September, 2023. I'm Michael Thompson, and Sean Aylmer is still away. With me instead is Jennifer Duke. Fear and Greed presenter, economics correspondent on Capital Brief, and the winner of the weekend edition this week. How are you uh, feeling after your big victory on Saturday, Jen? Absolutely pumped, to be honest. <laughs> uh, it was an extraordinary episode, and if you haven't heard it, it is well worth going back and having a listen. It was a, a cracker of a competition where we pick out our big stories from the, the week, and our colleague Adam Lang picks out a, a winner for us, and it was just... It was a ferocious contest and you did come out on top. So well played. Look, and something else that you need to listen to is an interview that you've got coming up after the show today. You're speaking with Louise Watson, who is Managing Director, Country Head Australia and New Zealand at Natixis Investment Managers, a supporter of this podcast. Yeah, Louise was telling me all about their expansion into the retail investment space in Australia and the changing role that financial planners are playing in helping educate Aussie investors. Yeah, it is a good chat. It's coming up a little bit later on. A very good one for investors to have a listen to. But the main story this morning, Jen, a three-year break in discussions between Australia and China will finally come to really an official end this week. High-profile Australian delegates are heading to Beijing to participate in efforts to help improve our geopolitical relationships. Yeah, so over the weekend, Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong confirmed that a seventh Australia-China high-level dialogue is going to take place on Thursday this week. So it's going to cover a range of bilateral issues such as trade, investment, regional and international security in the economy. And these talks were originally set up in 2014, but they broke down in early 2020. I don't know if everyone remembers, but that's when former Prime Minister Scott Morrison called for an investigation into the source of COVID-19 in Wuhan and sort of annoyed China. So former Trade Minister Craig Emerson is leading this week's Australian delegation as co-chair, and former Minister for Foreign Affairs Julie Bishop is a delegate. It's considered a significant step closer to thawing out and stabilising the relationship that we have with our biggest trading partner. I think that line, sort of annoyed China, might, might be downplaying it slightly, <laughs> considering the uh, the, the uh, tariffs that were put on billions of dollars of Australian exports, which are gradually kind of piece by piece being lifted. So it is good news. Any improvement in the relationship is a positive sign for Australia. Now, the East Asia Summit and ASEAN Forum in Indonesia and the G20 Summit in India are also coming up this week. This is a massive week. It is Look, I think it's called summit season. It, <laughs> and if it's not, then it should be called summit season. But is there anything in particular that we should be keeping an eye out for in all of these kind of geopolitical discussions? I love the summit season branding. It makes it so much more approachable. <laughs> yeah, makes it feel like there'll be flags everywhere and cocktail parties. <laughs> well, look, the, the things definitely to watch out for is Chinese President Xi Jinping and whether or not he's actually going to be at either of the events, because reportedly he's going to send his premier instead. And a decision not to go to India would be seen as a massive snub because he's attended every other G20 summit in person, except for one, which was during COVID lockdown, so we kind of had an excuse. It's also a possible blow for Australia because Prime Minister Anthony Albanese had been preparing to meet with Xi on the sidelines of the G20. US President Joe Biden is also expected to skip the Jakarta trip. Okay. Uh, local markets, how did things wrap up on Friday? The S&P ASX 200 closed down about 0.4% on Friday to 7278 points, but the week was still up about 2.3%. 
There was a lot of red ink on Friday, so Chalice Mining continued to lead the falls over the last half of the week, down 7.3 on Friday, followed by Polynovo down 5.7. Qantas had a very difficult week, as we all know and we've been talking about, and it shared about 7% off its share price by the time it was all over. And the leader on Friday was Sayona Mining, up 4.6, followed by Whitehaven Coal, up 4, and Magellan, up 3.6%. We've really had a bit of a, a global flavour to the show so far, Jen. What's happening in international markets at the moment? So last week was a real mixed bag for global equity markets. There continued to be really big concerns about the state of the economy in China. Though there was a range of data last week and Beijing is taking steps to lower rates and stimulate activity, we will get trade and inflation data for China later on this week. So that will give us a big indicator of how that recovery is actually going. But over in the US, there are signs the labor market is cooling, which maybe signals the end of the rate rise cycle. So for the week, the S&P 500 was up 2%. The Nasdaq was up about 25 Euro stocks 50 was up 0.9% over the week. And Japanese shares gained 2.5%. The Hang Seng Index was down 0.8%. And the Shanghai Composite Index was down about 2.7%. Oil and iron ore were both up and the Aussie dollar was relatively unchanged and starts the week just under 65 US cents. All right, there is plenty going on. We've got a lot to cover today. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of the day's business news. Jen, big day for Canberra today. Parliament resumes and the government's closing loopholes bill, which is focused on helping gig workers, is proposing to put employers in prison for up to 10 years and fine them millions of dollars if they deliberately underpay workers. And that's regardless of whether the employer is hiring gig workers. So the workplace reforms are going to be introduced to Parliament today, and they include a major crackdown on underpayment, and it will make it a federal offence for deliberate wrongdoing on wages. That's according to an exclusive in the Sydney Morning Herald. Now, it wouldn't affect those who make honest errors. So if you accidentally do the wrong thing and don't don't pay your staff properly and you make a proper effort to repay and you self-report, you'll be fine. But anyone who's deliberately underpaying their staff would be caught up in this. Yeah, and the fines, the details of the fines on this, they are enormous, aren't they? Yeah, they are eye-watering fines. So there are maximum penalties of up to $7.8 million in most cases. But if the underpayment goes above that amount itself, then employers will be slugged three times the value of the underpayment. So that's above $23.4 million. And the government will give extra funding to the Fair Work Ombudsman to investigate these offences. Now, Jen, last week we had Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announce the date for the referendum on the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament. It's going to be held on October 14. And now we're hearing that a no vote on the referendum is unlikely to mean the end of the debate, with the opposition now saying that Aussies will vote again if the coalition knocks Labor out in the next election. Yeah, leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, is saying that he will hold a referendum himself on constitutional recognition should he win the next election. His version would aim to recognise First Australians in the constitution. And he also backs local and regional consultation groups as an alternative to The Voice. But this part wouldn't be in the constitution under his plan at all. The coalition has largely been saying it prefers a legislated version of The Voice. The current voice that's being proposed by the Prime Minister, Antony Albanese, is enshrined in the constitution alongside recognition and is an advisory committee chosen by Indigenous Australians. And for the music buffs, the Yes campaign doubled down with an ad featuring John Farnham's song, You're the Voice, and singer Paul Kelly released a new song last week supporting the Yes vote as well. So at least we getting a soundtrack. Yeah, we certainly are. And we are going to be hearing a lot, I imagine, of both of those songs, but also just from both sides yes. over the next, uh, what now, five and a half weeks or so. It is just going to be ramping up absolutely, uh, fairly significantly. Now, Deloitte 
is expecting up to a quarter of the Australian economy may be disrupted by generative AI. That is a finding from a new report released just last night. Yeah, the report found that three quarters of employees are concerned about generative AI and how it will use personal, confidential and sensitive information. And about one in 10 large Aussie businesses are already using it officially. But overall, 26% of the economy will face disruption. This is particularly going to be the case for finance, ICT, media, professional services, education, wholesale trade. I don't know if anyone else even left after that. And there are quite a few other intriguing details in there. By 2030, we're expecting to see the spend on AI from businesses rise sevenfold, which is huge. And what else did the report say? Are, Are people using it a lot right now? We hear so much about it, but are people actually using it? Definitely they are. It's clear there's going to be some real HR problems with generative AI. About a third of respondents that were surveyed by Deloitte say that they already use it for work, but two-thirds of that group say they don't think their manager actually knows about it. Much of this group is younger, so they're in that 18 to 24-year-old age category, and they say it saves them about five hours a week off their workload. There was a lot to unpack in the report, but it suggests there will be huge changes in the way we work, the types of work we do, and how businesses need to think about their workforce and investments and how they keep an eye on those young workers' affairs. (laughs) I won't know what they're doing in those extra five hours that they get each week from getting AI to do their jobs. (laughs) Sounds like there's ample opportunity for additional work. (laughs) Now, Jen, it's a big week for the economy, Uh, and I'm going to squeeze in a little plug here, of course, for Fear and Greed the week ahead with our resident economist, Stephen Kukoulos. That comes out today, and it's well worth a listen for his take on what's going to happen with the Reserve Bank board meeting tomorrow. But also, the, the federal government is already looking to downplay expectations about the GDP figures that are coming out this week. Yeah, that's right. We're not expecting official numbers until Wednesday that will detail our June quarter GDP result. But Treasurer Jim Chalmers is already putting out his media commentary. He's clearly trying to soften public expectations about what that data is going to show us quite a bit ahead of time. So he put out a statement yesterday that said national accounts will inevitably show the impact of high interest rates, high but moderating inflation and global uncertainty. And he said the government had been upfront that growth in the economy is expected to slow considerably over the next year and that households are clearly under pressure. The March quarter GDP result was a sixth straight increase, but the slowest growth since the economy bounced back from that COVID Delta lockdown in September 2021. So this one's probably going to be a little bit painful. Yeah, I suspect so. This is an interesting story. The chairman and founder of Australian baby formula company Care A2 Plus is accused of allegedly misleading US regulators to enter the infant market and get a personal windfall from listing on the ASX. So founder of Care A2 Plus, Dominic Galati, is being sued alongside Chairman Walter Bugno and CEO Steve Loder in Florida. Gensco Pharma, the company's former distribution partner, says that Care A2 allegedly told the US Food and Drug Administration that it had over a million tins of formula ready to be shipped and 300,000 more be produced for the market. But the Financial Review reports that this was during a significant shortage of formula and the case is alleging this was a misrepresentation made to present a compelling story to support its listing on the ASX. A lawyer for Mr. Bugno told the AFR that the claims were meritless and the business has refuted separate but similar allegations in an Aussie lawsuit filed against it by the distributor. Yeah, it's, a, it's a big story, that one. Now, one last one before we turn to international news. Uh, award organisations have been in the spotlight over the last few days in Australia and abroad, including the, the Walkley Awards here at home, and even just uh, a, a little 
award that you may not have heard of, the Nobel Peace Prize as well. Just that little little tiny Nobel Peace Prize award. <laughs> that trinket, that mere bauble. We'll leave that one till the till the very end of this section. But the uh, the most prestigious media awards in the country, the Walkleys, as you as you mentioned, have been caught up in really bad storm of criticism over the views of the event's founder and the nature of some of this year's planned sponsors. So petrol company Ampol is a platinum sponsor of the event, and that's the source of some of the concerns. Some high-profile journalists have criticised the event because of its ties to that fossil fuel company and some issues about the racist views from Sir William Gaston Walkley, an oil executive who died in the 1970s and founded the Walkleys. Cartoonists and high-profile journalists such as First Dog on the Moon and David Rowe withdrew their award entries. The Walkley organisers have apologised for these views and are reviewing their sponsors. All right, now let's get to the Nobel Peace Prize because this is fascinating. So the, uh, the, the, the actual presentation of the prize is due to be held in Stockholm, not until December, but it's, it's causing all kinds of problems now. Yeah, they've had to backtrack on their plans to invite Russia, Belarus and Iran to the award ceremony after a major backlash in Sweden threatened to overshadow the meaning of the Peace Prize in the first place. They will, however, still invite all the ambassadors to the announcement of the winner in Oslo. So they just don't get to go to the big event, though, in uh, in Stockholm in December. So it's a, it's it's... I was about to say a bit of a booby prize, but it's probably not what you want to describe anything to do with the Nobel Peace Prize as being, <laughs> would you? Always the bridesmaid, never the bride, isn't that the... <laughs> Indeed. Now, international news time. Some cracking stories here, Jen. Tech billionaires' secret plans to build a whole new city northeast of San Francisco have hit a bit of a snag in the form, <laughs> in the form of the people who actually live in that local area <laughs> who, who might have just wanted to be asked about it a little bit earlier. Yeah, so Silicon Valley rich listers have been behind the purchase of about 52,000 acres of farmland in Solano County, and that's in a multi-year real estate shopping spree. Now, according to Bloomberg, the moguls who are backing these purchases include big names like Sequoia Capital Chairman Mike Moritz, LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman, and venture capitalist Mark Andreessen. And about $800 million worth of land has been bought, and they've been paying up to five times over the odds to get a foothold. This is all apparently to build a brand new self-sufficient city and bring jobs and housing to local people. So it doesn't sound like it's going to be a particularly smooth process though, is it? No, they need to have rezoning, full new infrastructure approvals and so on. And locals have only really just found out via the media that it's the Silicon Valley elites that are behind all the land purchases. And now local mayors, including Catherine Moy from Fairfield, say they're going to do everything that they can to stop it. And it's not an appropriate way to go about developing. So Moy's drumming up a lot of local support. Meanwhile, some state senators are concerned about the area's $50 billion agriculture industry and the need for the land that they just bought to be used to feed people. All right. Now, I've been banging on uh, for a while about the the moon kind of, uh, the race <laughs> to the moon, really, and the fact that India has gone to the moon and that Russia was trying to get there as well. And anyway, India completed their moon landing and they're the, the furthest kind of south, the, furth- the closest to the South Pole that anyone has ever made it uh, on the moon before. Now, India is aiming for the sun, Yeah, the space race is really continuing. So the Indian Space Research Organization launched a rocket on Saturday to study the sun and now has a satellite in orbit. The probe's intended to study solar winds, which cause disturbances on Earth, as well as the effect of solar radiation on satellites. This is particularly compelling with private companies like Elon Musk SpaceX successfully venturing into low Earth orbit. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi wants the nation to be more of a player in space alongside the US and China, and the Indian government sees this as a step towards that vision. Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. Now, Jen, I know you are a lot cooler 
than I am. So <laughs> more fun at parties. Sorry. You are a lot more fun at parties than I am. <laughs> and so you probably also stands to reason that you're probably more fun at music festivals as well. <laughs> Burning Man Festival appears to be more of a swamp than a fire this year, though. The the weather is causing havoc for 73,000 attendees trapped in Nevada's Black Rock Desert. So festival organisers have actually had to tell attendees to conserve food and water and stay put at the event, which has gone from being one of the most popular festivals in the annual calendar to a pretty ugly situation on the ground. So on Friday, about 150 millimetres of rain fell on the site and it didn't really stop over the weekend at all. Some of the coverage indicated that even high-profile founders of some tech companies may have been among the crowds and unable to get out. Reno, Nevada is the fastest warming city in the US and climate protesters were out in front of the festival this year. Each event generates 100,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide, so that's part of the reason that they were there. But back in April, Wyatt actually wrote an article questioning whether Burning Man was facing an existential crisis due to the difficulties for more extreme weather. I love that they told attendees to conserve food. You try telling 73 attendees of a music festival who have all got the munchies simultaneously. (laughs) To conserve food. That is a cracking story. Now, up next is the Fear and Greed Daily interview. You are speaking today with Louise Watson from Natixis, one of a, a, basically a global fund manager who is a supporter of this podcast. Yeah, brilliant chat and all about the different trends in the investment space, um, different things that financial planners need to know, as well as, as well as people who are kind of getting used to investing themselves. Yeah, it's coming up next in the Fear and Greed playlist on your podcast platform or at fearandgreed.com.au and check out Fear and Greed the Week Ahead with Stephen Kukoulos as well. Thank you very much, Jen. Thanks so much, Michael. It's Monday, the 4th of September, 2023. Make sure you're following the podcast and join us online on LinkedIn, Instagram, X and Facebook. I'm Michael Thompson and that was Fear and Greed Business News. Have a great day. <laughs>